Well, good morning. This uh, feels a little weird. I haven't done this for three weeks. But, uh, I'm excited to be back in the saddle here. We have some questions this morning, just two of them. We're uh, actually going to finish up this question and answer series uh, next week. Uh, so we've got two questions this week, and we've got one kind of massive question uh, next week. And I've been laying out these ground rules as we've been going along. I, want, along. I want to continue to lay them out, which is that my goal is to present a biblical view of the question. But just the nature of what this is, a lot more of my opinion gets kind of put in here. So just take it for what it is. Uh, in fact, both questions today, you'll see um, I have some pretty clear opinions on both of these questions. I think they are established biblically and historically, but just take them for what they are, okay? They're, a lot of it is, is my opinion because some of this stuff isn't very clear and there are, are well-meaning people who disagree on these questions. So let me pray for us and we'll get in. Lord, thank you that we get to be together. Um, thank you that I have another opportunity to teach this morning. You know, I love that. I love that you've given me that ministry. So passionate about it. And thanks that we have another opportunity to dive into these questions and dive into your word, uh, try to understand some of these issues that can get a little sticky at times. I just pray that you'd help me to be clear this morning, that your spirit would be at work in teaching us whatever you want us to learn, and that we would walk away um, thinking differently about things and more walking in line with the way you think and the way that you act. So we pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, our first question today is, why do we gather on Sundays rather than the Sabbath of the law? I think this is a great question. I, I know I thought about this uh, question. Uh, I'm guessing if you've been a Christian for very long, it's probably crossed your mind, especially when... Um, there are uh, billboards out there. I don't know if we, I've seen any in our area, but you've probably seen them before from groups like the Seventh-day Adventists who are trying to communicate, hey, Saturday is the day. If you don't meet on a Saturday, you're doing something wrong. Like, God is disappointed with you. And I've actually found it a little strange, honestly, even with those who choose to meet on Sunday, which is, is most believers, that people will say something like, I observe the Sabbath by not working on Sundays and going to church. That is an odd statement to me because just the word Sabbath means Saturday is what it means. It means the seventh day of the week. To say, it's like saying, I observe Saturdays by resting on Sundays. That's weird, right? That's just odd linguistically, and you know, I care about words. And the idea of Sabbath is based on God's resting on the, on the seventh day, on, on Saturday, right? See this in Genesis 2. So what is the deal with Christians going to church on Sunday? And why do many people consider Sunday a day of rest? Why did Eric Liddell, you know, this, this sprinter, Chariots of Fire, you guys have probably seen this movie, right? Why did he choose not to run on a Sunday? What, what is the deal with that? Why would he do that and, and claim some sort of Sabbath rest for wanting to honor God with that, right? Are we somehow, out, somehow outside of God's will that we're meeting right now? Because if you didn't Look at your watch, it's Sunday morning, right? I will say this. I think we're completely fine to meet on Sundays for many, 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 many reasons, okay? And I'm going to give you some of those reasons uh, this morning. First one's this. The original Old Testament Sabbath instructions had nothing to do with God's people gathering together. It had nothing to do with that absolutely nothing. It had nothing to do with some sort of proper day for the people of God to be in one place together at one time and be worshiping him. It had nothing to do with that. If you go back to the original instruction in Exodus 28, 20 verse 8, it says, uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, keep it different than the other days of the week. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your cattle or resident who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day, the Saturday, and made it holy, made it different than the other days of the week." What were Saturdays meant for among the Israelites? Rest. 
It had nothing to do with the gathering of God's people. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Deuteronomy 5 says, Keep the Sabbath day to treat it holy, as Yahweh your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. You shall not do any work on that day. You or your son or your daughter or your male slave or your female slave or your ox or your donkey or your cattle or your resident stays with you. It sounds familiar, right? So that your male slave and your female slave may rest as well as you. This is an important last statement he makes here. So that your male slave and your female slave may rest as well as you. That they get a day off also... And then he says what he's thinking here. Look at this. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to celebrate the Sabbath day, the Saturday. God gave, Yahweh gave his people, Israel, a day off because of the fact that they lived in slavery for 400 years. And he's like, I want them to have this day off one day out of the week. It was a blessing to them. Now, they didn't always look at it as a blessing, I'll say that. But it was a blessing to them. And it had to do not with worshiping God. Worship was supposed to happen seven days a week, 24 hours a day, right? It had nothing to do with the gathering of God's people to worship him. It had everything to do with taking some naps, right? Like actually resting, which by the way was very, very odd in the ancient world. It was very unusual. The ancient world looked at that and went, why in the world, if you can be productive for six days, why wouldn't you be productive for seven days? Like that doesn't make any sense. Why would you take a day off? I know that's weird for us because we actually have a whole weekend where we're supposed to take two days off every week, right? But that did not exist in the ancient world. Everybody worked all the time. And why wouldn't you? You're trying to provide for your family. And the more work you do, the more productive you can be. And the more you can provide for your family, why wouldn't you do this? This is the ancient way of thinking, right? And know that the Jewish people, when they rested on that seventh day, didn't gather for hundreds of years. Now, they eventually did. Okay, so th these instructions are given around 1300 BC, right? They didn't start gathering on, on Sabbath days, on Saturdays, until at least 600 BC, until at least the Babylonian exile. And then they started having these little synagogues, these little places where there would be these gathering places, which is what synagogue means, place to gather. But we're talking hundreds of years. Those things were not linked in the Jewish mind. But somehow, we now have linked them in our minds. I honestly don't know where that comes from. I know that that has changed over time. I know that the Jewish people started to link it and say that synagogue worship was supposed to happen on Saturdays, right? And, and that probably has translated into us having some sort of thought that that's how Sabbath days work. But understand, point number one Sabbath has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with the gathering of God's people to worship. So that's a starting point at least. Number two, uh, the Saturday rest was very, very closely linked to the old covenant. Very, very closely linked. Exodus uh, 31 says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You must keep my Sabbath, my Saturdays. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. It is this unique thing in our relationship between you and me, which, by the way, was a faith thing, because you had every other culture in the world working seven days a week, producing that amount of production of seven days a week, and now they had to cut back their production to six days a week. You had to trust God in that, right? That maybe, you know, you're thinking, man, if I have less production, I might not be able to feed my kids this winter, right? That was a trust thing. That was a faith thing between them and God, right? So he says, keep it holy. Everyone who profanes it must be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work must be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath must be put to death. Okay, this is the, about their covenantal relationship. You, you need to rest on Saturdays. This is part of my covenant. If you don't rest on Saturdays, you're breaking the covenant, and there are consequences of breaking the covenant. There were consequences for breaking the covenant in many different ways, right? We have that throughout the law. 
This is a distinct characteristic of the Jewish people, and it showed their covenantal relationship to him. He goes on, he says, uh, so the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a permanent covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Between who? Yahweh and the sons of Israel. It was about this covenantal relationship, right? For six days, for in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and it was refreshed. Now, a a couple things to, to keep in mind here is this permanent covenant between Yahweh and Israel was a conditional covenant, right? If you go back to the fall, and I'll talk about this here in a second, we talked about the covenants and how, they, and how they worked, right? But this was a conditional covenant between Yahweh and his people, and it was supposed to be this ongoing covenant, right, between the, between the two of them, right? And it was made between Yahweh and Israel, and it was made, it, it does say here, forever, says between me and the sons of Israel forever. And you might go, wait, forever? This today is a forever day. That's not what the word means. Olam in, the, in Hebrew means an ongoing reality. Okay, so what he was trying to say is, as far as you can see into the, into the future, this is going to be an ongoing thing. This is not just today when he was talking to them. He's like, we're not going to just keep Saturdays as a different day than every other day of the week for like today or for this year or for the next couple of years, but your kids are going to do this and your grandkids are going to do this and your great-grandkids are going to do this. Like this is going to be an ongoing thing. That's what the word means. But it was part of the covenant, okay? Third thing, we are not under obligation to the old covenant. Again, if you went through this with us in the fall, you know, I made a case for this. I'm not going to make a case for this today, really. I'm going, to, I'm going to show a couple things. But if you want to hear the case for that, go back to December 11th of last year in the app. Go find that. Listen to that. We are not under obligation to the old covenant. Here's a couple of snippets of that. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to make a new covenant not like the old covenant. It's going to be different than the old covenant. The old covenant is going to go away, which Hebrews is going to talk about here in a second, and I'm going to establish this new covenant with my people. This is why Jesus, on the night before he was... He went to the cross. He said, when they're doing communion together, he's like, this is the new covenant. We're establishing this new covenant thing. This is what all of human history has been leading up to is this new covenant. Hebrews, which makes this case very, very well, by the way, I'm just going to take a snippet here. Uh, Hebrews 8 says this. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Jesus, to the extent that he, also, he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. By the way, the first covenant wasn't faulty in itself. It was faulty because we're faulty. Okay? We're, we're at fault. Then he has this long section of Jeremiah 31, which we just read, right? And then he says this in verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. The Mosaic covenant is no longer binding on the people of God. Its power to, uh, to put, a, put us under its authority has been dissolved through what Christ has done. New Testament believers are under a new and a better covenant that has better promises. So the point is this, and I know I'm just really going through this fast, but again, go back to the fall if you want to, want to hear more about that, or we can have a conversation. But the point is this, even if the Sabbath day was about the day that, that the people of God were supposed to come together and worship him eat under the Old Testament law, even if that was true, it's not true, but even if that was true, then that was under the old covenant and is not binding on us anymore. In fact, that kind of Sabbath rest isn't binding on us at all, which honestly, I get a little uncomfortable with those who, who say you should be resting in your life, which by the way, I think you should be resting in your life. I think you should find times of rest. But those who appeal to the Old Testament Sabbath to make an appeal on Christians' lives for rest, I don't think that's legit. We're not bound by that anymore, okay? That makes me a little uncomfortable when, that, when, when we go that direction. Take rest, but don't take it because there was an Old Covenant rest day, right? All right, number four. 
Jesus often spoke against the misunderstanding, this misunderstanding of the Old Testament and making it some sort of a litmus test for holiness. See, the problem is during Jesus' time, there had been hundreds of years of this kind of theologizing going on among Jewish leaders, and they were theologizing. Let me say this. The heart was good. Okay, the heart after um, the, they rebuilt the temple, and now you have this new period, you know, they're coming back from the Babylonian uh, captivity. The people are now wanting to follow God. They're wanting to hold to the covenantal law, which was great because they had major problems before this, right? But in doing so, they started um, getting to be real sticklers about the law and creating whole lists of law of how to follow this law, whole list of instructions of how to follow this one instruction from God, right? And they did this for hundreds of years, all this theologizing, right? And by the time that Jesus came onto the scene, this was firmly entrenched in the culture and firmly entrenched among the different groups of theological minds of the time, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and those guys, right? So you've got this situation in which the Pharisees were getting on to Jesus' disciples, because you might remember this thing, they're walking by and they grab some heads of grain because they're a little hungry, right? And they do this to it to get the chaff off and they take those heads of grain and they pop them in their mouth. And the Pharisees go, ha, don't do that. It's the Sabbath and you are reaping and you're winnowing, right? You know what reaping is. That's where they like cut large amounts of this of wheat, right? They separate the wheat from the chaff and all that stuff. And that is work. That's hard work, by the way. These guys just grabbed a handful, did this, popped in their mouth, and they're like, ah, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. Like with all of your biblical study, all of your like theological wrangling that you guys have been doing for hundreds of years, you have completely missed the point of the Sabbath instruction. And this is what he says very succinctly. Jesus said to him, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I'm telling you, in my estimation, those who are pushing Sabbath days, those who are pushing Saturday-only worship times, and those who are pushing Sunday-only worship times, which is, is happening too, Right? That's the only time the people of God can meet is on a Sunday, or at least that the main meeting has to happen on Sunday. What we're doing is we're doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing, is we're making the, some sort of gathering time, what day we gather on, we're making it a burden on people. See, the Pharisees were making this, this burdensome on them. And Jesus was like, guys, you don't get it. The Sabbath was not made to be some sort of litmus test, some sort of thing that was supposed to be some heavy burden to determine whether you're holy or not. It was supposed to be a break. It was supposed to be a day off. What the heck are you guys doing? Like, you guys don't get it at all. And by the way, I think Jesus is looking down on those who are caught up with this stuff and going, what are you doing? The worship of God, the gathering of God's people is supposed to be great. Who cares what you do it? Just do it because it's great, right? And yeah, go take a rest, but don't make it some sort of litmus test for, for holiness. Fifth thing, I know I got a lot of these. The Old Testament resting on Saturday was meant to point ahead to what Christ was going to accomplish. We talked a few weeks ago about the idea of typology in the Old Testament, right? Types, that there were these things throughout the Old Testament that kind of these themes that keep recurring in the Old Testament that were all pointing to the pivotal point in history when Jesus came and did what he did, right? The Sabbath was actually one of those things. The Saturday rest was one of those things that was pointing ahead to Christ. We know that from multiple passages, but we know that from Colossians 2. It says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So if, if this is something you struggle with, if, you're, if you struggle with judging people about how they act on a Saturday or a Sunday, probably if you're in this room, you might judge someone based on what they do on a Sunday, you need to put Colossians 2 on your mirror for a little while. Okay, because you should not be judging others on this. And if you feel judged, that's who he's talking to, if you feel judged about this stuff, 
Know that these things, look at 17, these things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The day of rest that God gave the Israelites was a type, was a foreshadowing of the fullness that was going to come in Christ. There's no need to hold to the shadow anymore. There's no need to hold to some sort of Sabbath situation because the fullness has come in Christ. Now, you might go, well, how did Christ accomplish this Sabbath thing? Well, Hebrews helps us with this. Hebrews 4 says this. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Ah, there is a Sabbath rest for New Testament believers who are in the new covenant. There is one. Let's find out what it is. He says, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. The new covenant equivalent of the Saturday rest, the rest that they had one day of week, is not making sure you perform certain religious things on certain, certain days. It's not about you taking a rest from work in any shape, way, shape, or form or taking one particular day or two particular days or whatever. It's not about that at all for a new covenant believer. What it is, is it's us laying down our efforts to please God with our works. And those of us who, have, who are in Christ and who have been believers for years, many of us still struggle with this. Many of us still struggle with trying to win God over trying to prove ourselves to God. He's like, I've got a rest for you. And that rest is, stop trying to prove yourself to me. Lay down your works and completely trust, completely rest in the finished work of Christ. That is our Sabbath rest, guys. And it's way better than a day off, right? Way better. Which, by the way, is interesting because I think those who are pushing Sabbath days and, and holding to Sabbath days and those, if you're going to be really holy, you need to be on that Sabbath day, they're actually doing the opposite, aren't they? They're saying your works need to prove something to God. You better show up on Sunday. You better. Yeah? No. Jesus accomplished it all. He took care of it all. We can rest now. So, why in the world do we meet on Sundays? <laughs> when God's people, they didn't meet on Saturdays for a long time, but then they had the tradition of meeting on Saturdays. They did. Synagogue worship happened on Saturdays. So why in the world are, do we meet on Sundays? Why don't we meet on Saturdays? Just because of tradition, right? Well, we got to understand that very early on in the church, the tradition switched. The tr tradition changed. Actually, when the church was first established, right after Pentecost, right, they were meeting every day of the week, every single day they met together, right? But then shortly, you know, that didn't last too long because that, that's pretty burdensome. But eventually it got winnowed down. And when it got winnowed down, it got winnowed down to Sundays. And the reason why it, it did was that Jesus rose from the dead on Sundays. They were like, that's the day we want to meet. We want to meet on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, Jesus died on Friday, Saturday was the Sabbath, so nothing was going on, right? And then Jesus rose on the third day, which was Sunday, okay? So we meet traditionally, and the church has met traditionally since that time, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. They actually called it the Lord's Day. We see this uh, in Acts 20. Uh, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. When we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He prolonged his message until midnight. All right, we're going to do that today. Midnight is only, what, 13 hours away? We can do it, right? Um, now, see, this is the interesting thing, is that uh, some of this is a little vague, okay? So, so understand, this is not definitive what I'm about to say, but it seems like the way that it worked was actually um, Jewish believers, which was the bulk of the church early on, um, they actually met Sunday evening, not Sunday morning. And the reason why they did that if, is semi-logical when you think through it, is that um, they still rested on Saturdays. They, they still took a day of rest on Saturdays. Uh, part of that was they grew up that way, right? It's kind of the way that they grew up, even 
before Christ came, right? And so they, they took a day off on Saturday, and they were used to taking a day off on Saturday, and so they would do that. They also probably would have been persecuted pretty severely if they would have been working on Saturdays within those Jewish communities. So everybody just took the day off. They took the day off, and then they would actually work on Sundays, and they would meet Sunday evenings because they were working during the day on Sunday, right? Kind of makes sense. Um, the point of all this and I've been very long-winded on it, is the day we meet is a non-biblical matter. It's a non-biblical matter. We could meet on Tuesdays, and it'd be totally fine, right? By the way, there are churches that meet on Tuesdays. In fact, I know of pastors who are itinerant pastors who have like four or five different churches, and they go to a different church on different days. Walt knows some of these guys in other countries, right? Like, it's totally fine. The day of the week that we meet is not an issue. And so we should embrace the freedom we have in Christ, but we should also embrace charity toward others who have different views than us, right? I've talked about this before. I highly respect what Eric Liddell did in the Olympics. I don't, I, I don't hold his same belief that he couldn't have run on that Saturday. I think he totally could have run on that Saturday. But I highly respect him because of Romans 14, which that is hard to see, but I want to read it here. It says, who are you to judge a servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person values one day over, over another. Another value, values every day the same. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Eric Liddell was fully convinced in his own mind that he should not be running on a Sunday, Right? The one who observes the day observes it for the Lord. The one who eats does so to regard the Lord, uh, with regard to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, for, and the one who does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, if, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So, so the fact that he had that conviction in his heart and he acted on that in a very sacrificial way to honor Christ, I'm going to applaud that all day, right? Um, charity and freedom are the things we should embrace regarding this issue, I think. So why don't we gather on Sundays? Or why do we gather on Sundays? Uh, because of Christian tradition is really why we do it. Uh, and because... We are not under any law concerning what day of the week we meet. That's the bottom line. All right. Question number two. Nerds, get your pens out because this is a nerdy one here. Uh, here we go. Uh, question is this. What is the deal with people in the Old Testament using the Urim and Thummim, casting lots, and the Holy Spirit to make decisions? Here we go. All right, so the Holy Spirit, let's start with that. Um, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, understand, was only given to a small group of people, a select group of people, at least that we know of, okay? Uh, we know that Moses, uh, the elders of Israel in his time had the Spirit, uh, Joshua, uh, some of the judges had, had the Spirit, Saul, David, they had the Spirit, uh, a handful of others, right? Uh, it seems like in the Old Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was given as kind of a special anointing on certain people who were accomplishing certain things. And it was usually uh, leadership roles, okay? Seems to be that. Having said that, I do not personally see a direct link between decision-making and the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. I do not personally see anywhere in Scripture that I have seen a direct link between decision-making and the work of the Holy Spirit. I see the Holy Spirit uh, leading us into truth. He does that. I see the Holy Spirit giving us assurance of our relationship with God, that we're sons and daughters of God. He does that. Uh, the Holy Spirit unifies the church. The Holy Spirit um, empowers us to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, to empower us to be like Christ. He does that. Uh, we do have a few instances in Scripture where the Holy Spirit directly... Um, you know, directs a person to do something specific, right? So like, uh, uh, if you know the situation where um, Philip, who was an apostle, uh, 
he was told by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius, who was in this chariot, and go talk to him. And they talked about Isaiah, right? Uh, like that was a direct, like, go do this, right? Um, you have Paul, uh, who is told by the Holy Spirit to go with this group of people who comes from Cornelius' household. Um, but in those instances, like the mode of how these people are told is not clear in the text. It's not clear of how it went down, okay? Um, and it's not like a decision-making mechanism, right? It's not like I have two choices, like uh, do I go to this college or I go to this college, and I pray, and the Holy Spirit's like this one. I don't see that in Scripture. Um, and actually, those cases in which the Holy Spirit directs someone to do something, um, I think at least in one case, we have a hint as to what the mode was. At least I see it as a hint as to what the mode was. I will show you that here. Okay, this is Acts 13. It says, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, this is the church in Antioch, by the way. They, they were serving the Lord and they were fasting, the church in Antioch. And the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart from me for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit says this, right? Uh, and this is the start of Paul's first missionary journey, okay? Paul and Barnabas get sent out. Um, if you look in verse 1, I think we have the mode of how it went down. Verse 1 says, now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch. In the church, there was Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So in this group of Antioch believers, there were, were some prophets there. Prophets were those who were given direct inspiration from God to speak his words directly. I think that's how it went down, at least in this instance where a prophet said, I got a word from the Spirit, and this is what the Spirit says, we need to send them on their way, okay? I don't know that that's happening in every situation. But again, I hope you're tracking with me. I don't see the Holy Spirit being directly linked to helping people make decisions between two or more options. I don't see it. Now, so I'm kind of pushing that one out of the way here for a sec. Uh, by the way, if you think the Holy Spirit helps you do that, fine, don't... Don't take my word for it. I just don't see biblically that going on, okay? Now, we have these other things, Urim and Thummim and casting lots, which 100% were decision-making mechanisms. They were. Um, that's why I wouldn't equate them with what the Holy Spirit was doing, right? Um, this, these things were, were God uh, clearly giving them a mechanism by which to make a decision by two or more, cho two or more choices, Okay? The tough thing about both of these things is we have, the Bible gives us super limited information on these things. Uh, like, we really don't know a lot about how it went down. We don't. Um, in fact, the Urim and, Urim and Thummim are only mentioned seven times in all of the Old Testament. Um, what we do know is we know that the high priest wore uh, an ephod. Which, which actually, I don't know if, Mike, you caught on to what we were talking about today and read that scripture, but he read uh, from Exodus 28, right? And I'm going to have a, just a little snippet of that, right? Um, it says, and you shall put on the breast piece of judgment, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before Yahweh. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before Yahweh continually. So there was this ephod that the high priest would wear, Okay, and it's described how to create that ephod. And there was this breast pouch that went here. I'll show you a picture here in a second. Okay? Um, and, and inside that breast pouch, it's believed, well, we know that Urim and Thummim were in there. We're in this pouch. Okay? We don't really know what that is. Like, it could be a couple of geckos or something. We don't actually know right? Uh, it probably wasn't geckos. Uh, they would die in there or something, right? But we don't know, okay? Um, now, we do have um, later Jewish scholars, okay? This is much later. Jewish scholars who speak about uh, the Urim and the Thummim being, being these stones, okay? Which I think is actually seems pretty reasonable that it, would, it could be these stones, okay? And that it was something like this, okay? So you have this pouch, uh, they believed, they, they stated that there was a white stone and there was a black stone, and you put it in the pouch. Now, I don't think that's exactly what the pouch looked like, because I don't know if you caught on, but if he leans to one side, those stones are going to slide out. I think they were sewed up on the side. But anyway, that's just my two cents. But 
Uh, it's believed that there were these two rocks in there, okay? One black, one white, with some writing on them. Um, and that if a decision was meant to be made, the high priest would go into the presence of Yahweh and, and would ask about a decision and would reach into that pouch and pull out a stone. And, and so it would be like, hey, should we go and battle the Philistines? And they would reach into the pouch. They would pull it out. If it's the black stone, don't go. If it's the white stone, go. Right? Seems reasonable. Seems likely. I'm kind of buying what these uh, Jewish scholars say. Okay? But it, some have suggested, actually, that there were multiple rocks in there. Because you do have a, a situation, a couple situations, in which they, they um, ask a question using the Urim and Thummim, but they don't get an answer. Well, how does that work? There's two rocks in there. How are you not going to get an answer? So is there, there may be a third rock, which is the, you know, you know that magic eight ball where it was like, the, it's cloudy or something. What was the thing? You know, the answer is unclear. Like maybe there was a third rock, which was the answer is unclear. Who knows? Some have suggested that there were actually, a, it was a sack of rocks with, with lots of white and lots of black. And that if you like uh, took out a white and a black, like you take out two, that maybe that was an unclear answer where you had to take out two of the same color. As you can imagine, since this is so unclear, there are a million ideas that theologians have come up with on how this works. We don't know. We just don't know how it works. We do know that it was a decision-making mechanism. In fact, uh, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read all these, but uh, in Numbers, we have uh, this being used when Joshua becomes the successor of Moses. Uh, that, they, that Moses asks God, I need someone to follow me. I need someone to be a successor to me. I'm going to die. Who's that going to be? And Yahweh clearly tells Moses, that's going to be Joshua. But then he says, take Joshua in front of the people with the high priest and consult the Urim and Thummim so that the people could see that Joshua was the guy. So the three of them are up there. They consult the Urim and Thummim. We're going to go with the white and black rock, right? And like, is Joshua the guy to, to replace Moses? He reaches in. He pulls out white. The, the crowd cheers. Yay, it's him, right? Everybody knows it's God's will that Joshua be the guy, okay? Um, it appears to be used by, uh, by David um, in... 1 Samuel 23, even though the Urim and Thummim are not directly uh, uh, mentioned here, the ephod is, which had the Urim and Thummim in them, um, and, and Saul uh, asks for the ephod to be brought. The assumption is he's consulting the Urim and Thummim, right? Because he's like, bring the ephod and let's make this decision. He's trying to figure out who did wrong. Someone ate when they shouldn't have eaten, okay? So he's like, who did wrong? No one's fessing up. We don't know who it is. So he's like, uh, is it someone out there, you guys, or is it the leadership? Is it me or, uh, or my son? And then, it's, and then it's like, oh, it's you or your son. Okay, now is it... Is it uh, is, between me and Jonathan, who is it, okay? So then uh, you pull it out, oh, it's Jonathan. And sure enough, Jonathan had, had done wrong, right? So, so this was a way, you could just picture it, of, of determining God's will by pulling rocks, it seems like, out of a pouch. Now, I don't know about you, but as a 21st century guy, I'm like, that is just plain weird, like, that is a weird thing to be grabbing rocks out of a bag and, seeing, and, and saying this is God's will, right? It's literally, in my mind, like flipping a coin to determine what God's will is. Like, this is a weird thing. But understand, God gave them this mechanism. He's the one who told them, do this, okay? He said, you're going to put, make this pouch, and you're going to put the Urim and Thummim in. Now, I want to point out one thing because it's going to get to my main point on, on this, my main perspective on this, okay? You'll notice the first time the Urim and Thummim are mentioned is in Exodus 28, 30. And I'll read this again. It says, and you shall put the breast piece of judgment, you shall put in the breast piece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when, the, when he goes before Yahweh. I don't know about you, but I read that. And when you read the other parts of the law, like things that the people were unfamiliar with, 
Yahweh's very clear on like how to build certain parts of the tabernacle and like make it this long and do this. And he's very clear on what it is. Like he's explaining to them how to get this stuff done. I read this and I think they already knew what the Urim and Thummim were. Like he's not explaining even what they are. Like you would expect if you're reading through the law and how the law works, you would read through this and you'd go, he'd go, put in the breast piece of judgment a white rock and a black rock. We're going to call that the Urim and Thummim. And you're going to draw, like he would explain to them how this works. And we would have a record of that. We have no record of that. So, so I take this as the people already had, were familiar with this concept, at least, of the Urim and Thummim. I'm going to leave it at that because it, it, it's going to get to my point here in a second. All right, casting lots. We also know very, very, very little about this. And if you read about this stuff, you will find a million different pieces of conjecture, all suggesting different ways that casting lots might have worked. We do know that casting lots were determined were used to determine God's will. Like, what is God's will for us? Let's cast lots to figure this thing out. And it's used throughout the Old Testament, and it's used a little in the New Testament. Um, in fact, it was used to determine how the promised land was going um, to be divided up. Not the size of the allotments, but like where. Uh, like, like, where is this tribe going to be in the northwest, and this tribe, which tribe is going to be in the northeast, which tribe is going to be right in the middle? Like, it was used to determine all of that. Um, and, and I would read that for you, but I've already taken too much time, okay? Uh, that is in Numbers 26, if you want to look it up. Um, it was also used uh, in regards to what's called the scapegoat. So the, there, was, there was two goats brought to the tent of meeting, um, they were to cast lots, the high priest was to cast lots, to determine which one of the goats was going to be slaughtered, and the other one was going to be released into the wilderness. The scapegoat gets to go, right? So, see ya, bye-bye, uh, we're going to cast lots um, for these different goats. One's going to go bye-bye, the other one's going to leave us, okay, one, one of them's going to die. Um, I try not to read this to my goats for a bedtime story, they don't like it, they're a little scared of it, just kidding. I don't, I read it to them. I like to scare them. Um, but, uh, uh, so this is casting lots, okay? They would do this. Um, Yahweh seems perfectly okay with them doing this, right? Um, in fact, he instructs them to do this. Um, we know in the New Testament, this is how the, the 12th apostle was, was chosen um, once Judas died. Okay, so who's going to be the 12th one? Well, let's cast lots and figure it out. Let's, let's allow God to help us determine. We've got two guys here. We need to determine who it's going to be. Let's cast lots to see who it is so that God can give us some direction as to who should be the 12th guy. Um, most scholars believe, and I am actually with them on this, that casting lots and the Urim and Thummim are actually very similar mechanisms. In fact, probably the Urim and Thummim was a way to cast lots, was a form of casting lots, okay? The difference being, might be that, you know, when you've got multiple things, like the 12 tribes, for instance, that, it's, that probably, again, we don't know, probably the way that worked is they wrote the names of the 12 tribes on little uh, rocks or pieces of, of wood or something, put them in a jar, shook them up, and said, okay, who are we putting in the Northwest? And they either pulled one out or dropped one out, and they went, oh, Judah. Actually, they were in the Northwest. But anyway, you get the idea, right? Like, they're going to determine that by, like, dumping or picking out of a hat, basically, is what it is, right? Again, we don't know that that's how it worked, but we're guessing. I think it's very likely these are very, very similar things. Here is finally, I'm going to land the plane. I really am. Um, here's my thing. I am a big believer, and I came to this when I was in seminary, actually. It was part of one of the, one of the things that I go, man, that I, I, I really appreciate having gone through a lot of study of this particular thing, and, and, and it helped me understand how, God's, how I think God's interacting with us. I think God always interacts with us um, on, our, on our terms. He, he meets us where we are in life. Um, he made, meets people where they are. He meets cultures where they are. Um, the Old Testament uh, people understood our world to be something like this. 
Okay, there's Sheol below, there's this existence that we have on the land, and then there's the heavens above, and this is how the, the universe works. We in the 21st century know, well, we think the universe works like this, right? That there's a massive universe out there. Now, I actually don't, I doubt that that's even how the universe works, but that's our current understanding. Because honestly, the only, that's not a real picture. That's like a, they, that's a computer-generated thing that they, they take a bunch of pictures and try to figure out what it might look like. As you can imagine, we don't have a camera on the outside of the universe taking a picture, right? So this is how they guess the universe works. I would, you know, they put up this new, new telescope, the, uh, the Hubble, what's the, the one after that? The web, right? And, and, and almost every week I'm reading an article about how they're, they're understanding the universe in a different way, right? Because <laughs> they're figuring things out. Like, this is our current understanding of it, right? I think we're going to have a different understanding 100 years from now, right? Um, but here's the great thing. God always spoke to the people who had this kind of a world in, the, in a way that they would understand. He would, never speak to, he would never speak to them like this sort of a world to this sort of a world people. Right? Does that make sense? Because God loves us, and it's not going to do that to us. Why, why, why is he going to be complicated like that? That makes no sense. That's love. So I think the use of lots and the, the umin and thumim, lots we know were not a Jewish people thing. They were used all over the ancient world for hundreds of years, thousands of years. They were a very, very common thing in the ancient world to, to, to figure out, to make divine, to, to understand the divine will. That's what it was for. And so in lots of different cultures, they used lots to do this. I think Yahweh, our God, was using something they understood to help divine his will. And he actually set it up that way. He's like, I want you to come to me and ask me questions at times. We're going to put these umin thumim in a pouch, which is like casting lots. You guys know what that's like, right? You, you guys know what that's about. And then I will determine for you a yes and a no based on that. So should we cast lots today? No, I don't think we should cast lots today. Uh, should we be grabbing stones out of pouches? I don't think we should be doing that. Um, should we flip a coin to know God's will? I wouldn't recommend it, but, but go for it, right? Like, sure, if you think that's the best way to understand God's will for you, go for it. Flip a coin. Uh, should we be, uh, I think I've got a coin here. Um, should we be using a pros and cons list? I kind of recommend that, actually. I think that's helpful. Uh, that could help us make decisions. Uh, should we use the principle that when God closes a door, he opens a window? So like when a, a, an opportunity shuts down and then a new opportunity comes, that must be God's will. Maybe you've made decisions in your life like that. Go for it, right? That's not a biblical principle, but hey, maybe, right? That might be helpful. Uh, should you seek wise counsel? 100% you should be seeking wise counsel over difficult decisions, Right? In my opinion, in this area of trying to, de to determine God's will for your life, which a lot of people have these questions, and I get it, my encouragement would be to use your best judgment and to trust that God has got you. I think the reason why we want to go to a coin flip, although nobody goes to a coin flip, the reason why we want to go to these things where we go, I'm certain God has me going in this direction, is that we want that kind of certainty in our life because we're worried that maybe if we make the wrong choice, God's not going to have us. No, no, he's going to have you in the wrong choice too. Do we really think that if we're seeking God's will honestly, that if we're walking in the Spirit, we're walking in line with His revealed truth, that we're trying to make the best decisions we can in life, that somehow we're going to blow up God's good for us? Come on. That's not going to happen. Romans 8.28 was read last week. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to this purpose. That is never going to change. Even if you make a sinful decision, that's not going to change. Even if you make the dumbest decision you've ever made in your, your life, that is not going to change. So I think the reason why we're so caught up with God's will and all that stuff, in my opinion is, and I know this from my own life, is I am not trusting that God's got me. Because if I trusted that God's got me, honestly, I could make this decision or that decision, and God's still going to have me. He's still going to be working his good 
For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these he, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these who, whom he justified, he also glorified. That means every single day of your life, you're good. He's got your good. You're good. Make a decision. It's okay. You're good. And that's why he ends this by saying, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, I can. I can make the wrong decision. What? No. Your dumb decision is not going to change this. I'm totally on board with Augustine, who said, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. I think God is far less stressed than you are about what college you go to. He is far less stressed about whether you should take that promotion or not take that promotion at work. He's far less stressed about whether you should buy that new couch or stick with the old couch, right? He's far less stressed about whether you have two kids or you have five kids. Five is a lot. But he's not stressed about that. He is far, far more concerned about how you're going to live on the college campus you choose. Far more concerned about whether you are trusting God to provide for your family, whether you take that promotion or you don't take that promotion. Far more concerned about how you're treating the people who are sitting on the couch, whether it's new or old, right? Far more concerned about how you parent two kids or five kids. That's the stuff that he's concerned about. And I think we just need to leave trying to divine God's will to others. Just, just trust him. Walk in faith into the decisions you need to make in life. And he's got you. Let me pray for us. Lord, just so uh, thankful for who you are. Just so thankful that you are trustworthy. Completely, utterly trustworthy in our lives. Lord, help us to live as those who trust you. Live as those who, who are so confident that you've got us in your hand that, uh, that we can trust in our own decisions with limited information and, uh, and not really understanding our hearts very well. Uh, that, that we can make decisions and it's okay for us to make those decisions without some sort of uh, divine stamp, some sort of, um, some sort of coin flip that, that verifies something, some sort of grabbing stones to, uh, in, our, in our lives to, to help verify that for us, Lord, that we can trust you completely and then make decisions that we think are best and that you've got us. Lord, we want to trust you on that level. We want to trust you so fully that all worry and doubt and fear is just swallowed up in the, in the character of who you are. Pray this all in your name.